Hi again, everyone. This is your host, Ishraf Khan. And Cheryl Shue. And welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of The Lowdown. We're taping this at the start of Quarter 4, and we're actually coming to you from our homes. So that is definitely something new because we're usually in the studio. And now that we're all online, I hope that you're all taking care of your mental health. And fun fact, our last episode was about mental health. So take a listen if you want to learn some helpful coping strategies, um, learn about more mental health resources because we talked to some very esteemed guests and you can also check out the student solidarity committee website for more information on mental health and mental health resources so yeah hope you guys enjoy this episode I literally want to get straight into today's episode because I am so excited for our guest today. I actually reached out to her because I see her being such an amazing advocate and representative on social media and within the community. And she's also the MLA for our district, MLA Rocky Pancholi. How are you today? I'm great, Cheryl. Thanks for inviting me to be part of this. No problem. I'm really excited. I have been looking forward to this all week, even after the preliminary interview. I thought it went so well. I'm super excited personally. Me too. I tend to be pretty chatty, so I was worried that I uh, took up too much time on the first interview. I'll save some stuff for this, of course. Of course, yeah. I'm sure we'll have so much to talk about anyways. Um, Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so you are the MLA for the Edmonton White Mud and the official opposition critic for Children's Services. So for those of our listeners who may or may not know about these positions, could you tell them a bit more about what you do in these roles? What does your job look like? Thanks, Ishraf. So uh, there's sort of three parts to my job. So the first is that I am the uh, MLA for Edmonton White Mud, of course, which means that I represent the roughly 45 to 47,000 people who live in the Edmonton White Mud area. Uh, and I always highlight uh, that I represent everybody who lives in the uh, in the riding, which means uh, people who uh, are not eligible to vote. And by that, of course, I include all of the young people and children in the riding as well, um, as well as those people who voted. It doesn't matter who they voted for. I represent everybody in this district. So that part of the job is really my responsibility is listening to the people who live here and, um, and making sure that I understand what their concerns are and what their top issues are. And how they feel about what's going on in uh, the government of Alberta and across our province, which means I not only have to listen, but I also have to do some communication outwards as well, like making sure that uh, people who live here uh, know what's going on in the legislature, um, knows my thoughts on certain issues and taking that feedback. Of course, during COVID, um, you know, feedback looks a little different. It's a lot more reliant on um, doing things like, you know, answering emails and phone calls and virtual meetings of course, um, and not, not as much opportunity to do the things I would normally do, like being out in the community at events, um, at door, going door to door, doing door knocking. Those are the kinds of things I would typically do. Less opportunity for that right now. So I'm really relying on people to reach out to me and finding new and creative ways for me to communicate out to the community. So that's uh, the first part of the job. The second is, as you mentioned, I'm the official opposition uh, critic for children's services. So it's pretty typical. I think every, every government sort of does it differently, but 
Usually when there is a government with their each ministries that they've decided and their, and their ministers for their portfolios, uh, a member of the official opposition is often assigned to be the critic for that portfolio. So for the Alberta government, there is Alberta Children's Services, which has responsibility for issues related to early learning and childcare, as well as issues related to child intervention. So that's when kids are in family settings where the family is either not able to or there's to take to care for the child properly. There's concerns about the well-being or safety of the child, but also supporting families to stay together. Um, And that means providing supports where families need it so that they can actually learn strategies and ways to make sure the household is safe and the family is safe. But it also means um, dealing with issues related to children who go into foster care uh, or go into permanent government care. So that's my portfolio. And that's not limited to Edmonton White Mud. Like that's actually provincial, right? So that's a, that's yeah. a that affects people across the province. So there's a big part of that for me is reaching out to stakeholders, um, reaching out to people across the province. Uh, and actually I have to tell you, um, COVID has actually been in some ways easier that I can communicate by virtual means with yeah. people province. Um, but I get a lot of questions from parents, from children, from um, organizations that work with kids and early learning. Uh, and that's that's the that's the second part of my job. And then the third part is actually the part that most people might be familiar with, which is um, seeing an MLA in the legislature, right? So for those of your listeners who have had the opportunity to either visit the legislature, maybe even see what it's like during question period or during debates, that's the part where I am in the legislature debating uh, the laws or the proposed laws that are being brought forward by the government and asking questions and holding them to account. So I usually describe that as my three roles um, as part of being an MLA. And I can tell you, they keep me busy. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. You sound like you, you know, you're doing the most though. Like it's very good. I remember we like the legislature, we had like school at the ledge when we were in grade six and just like learning about what the MLA is doing. We did actually get to see the question period. Um, So there you go, guys, for all our listeners out there. That is what it's like being an MLA. Yeah. For sure. And, you know, you just gave us so much information about what you currently do um, as an MLA, but also you spoke to us previously about how you used to be a lawyer as well. So we were wondering how that really like led up to you becoming an MLA and what really inspired you. Yeah, so thanks, Cheryl. So I was um, an, uh, a lawyer, a practicing lawyer for about 13 years before I decided to run for office. And so I grew up here in Edmonton. I went to U of A for my undergrad. I took uh, political science as my undergrad. And then from there, went on to law school and went to Toronto, actually, to do my law degree at the University of Toronto. Uh, And I came back to Edmonton because it's home and that's where my family is and decided to practice law here. And I did that for eight years within the Alberta government. So actually within Alberta education. So my connection to the education world goes back a long ways and uh, extends even to my professional work as a lawyer. So I, yeah, I practiced law within the Ministry of Education and then went on to work in private practice um, supporting uh, school boards directly. So working with Alberta school boards across the province. So, you know, on paper, it kind of looks like my background is a pretty typical politician's background. Like you often hear about lawyers going into politics, right? It's a very typical route, um, which I can appreciate. And I think it's kind of funny because um, I feel like I fit the mold that way, even though it was never my plan to do that. So I did not go into law thinking I would one day go into politics. Um, Although I have to say like, 
I've had an interest in politics for a long time, but I certainly did not think that that was the, the route I would take. But certainly, and there's a reason why I think often lawyers go into politics. And part of that is because many of the skills of being a lawyer are definitely transferable to being in politics. Of course, there's debating, which is a huge part of the work that I do. It's looking at issues and then figuring out what your position is and then advocating on that position. There's certainly big elements of public speaking, of course, that are part of both being a lawyer and part of being a politician. Um, so that's certainly something that I have to say, like the skills from being a lawyer are definitely transferable to, uh, to politics. But I say this knowing that I actually strongly believe that we need a lot of diversity in terms of the background and experiences of people who become politicians, because at the core of it, you know, an elected official is a representative and is meant to represent a large group of people. And when you get 87 MLAs into the legislature, you want to have many different perspectives and experiences reflected even in those people in the legislature. So um, while I have to say that being a lawyer has helped me prepare for being a politician, I really hope that we have a lot of other professions and backgrounds and experiences. And then of course, diversity in representation in terms of ethnicity, gender, um, sexual orientation, abilities. Like we need to see all of that reflected in our elected officials. So uh, I certainly don't tell people that if you want to go into politics, you have to be a lawyer first, because I really don't believe that. I really uh, want to, and my favorite conversations are with people who don't have those backgrounds at all and still want to be in politics, because politics is about reflecting people and people come from so many different backgrounds. So I'm pretty typical in some ways, but very atypical in others. And that's, uh, I think, maybe a good thing about being an elected official. Yeah, no, I totally agree, especially that part about, you know, like politics, like you can come from any background and like get involved in politics. Um, like I know a lot of like I have family friends or people that are like within my family that are involved in politics that don't necessarily come from like a traditional like law, law background or like they didn't, you know, major in political science and all of that. But I think that politics, it's one of those things where, you know, all walks of life can participate it participate in it to like certain degrees. Right. Um, and I think that's and it's also very important for that diversity to be in involved in politics, right? Like, as you said yourself, um, and we learn about that a bit in school. And I think that's kind of where it starts, right? Is like learning in school about the different ways that you can get involved in politics and whether it's in social studies or like any sort of politics related course. Um, and then, you know, you kind of progress into that after you graduate. And it's really important to teach young people about politics, I think. Yeah. And you know what I have to say, Ashoth, like one of the reasons why I decided to run was because, you know, I grew up in this province and, and I watched politics pretty closely just because I was interested. I Social studies was always my favorite class in school and, uh, and I was really interested in issues. And I watched politics and I didn't see elected officials who looked like me. I didn't see those people. And when I say for those listeners who, you know, maybe can't see me, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a woman of color, right? And I, uh, my parents immigrated to this country in the late 1960s. And I grew up here um, knowing that I, I didn't look like most people, although there's definitely large communities of, of persons of color that we were part of. But, you know, I didn't see those people reflected um, in those people who are making decisions and who were around the table. And I think the reason why that's important, and I think it kind of goes without saying at this point, but 
if you don't have that diversity reflected in the in the people who are making decisions, they're not going to consider the experiences, even if they're well-meaning. Let's be honest. Like even if they're well-intentioned and want to do that, um, it's it's important. And there's a number of times in the legislature where I get to share my personal experiences, which I know are similar to many other uh, women of color in particular. And that needs to be heard and it needs to be recognized. And um, so that was one of the inspirations for me to run. I thought, you know what, things need to change a little bit. And um, the things that I care about, I know other people care about too. So diversity, and that's just one way. And, and one thing I know we always have to be cautious of a little bit is, yes, I'm a woman of color, but I certainly can't speak for all women of color either, right? And um, even within my own ethnic community, my South Asian community, uh, there's a strong diversity of views even within that. But if we start to understand that there are perspectives other than the dominant one, um, and when we're making decisions about laws and policies and how money is being spent, we have to consider all those other experiences. And so I certainly can't speak for all women of color, but I certainly feel like it's important to make sure that they feel seen and feel heard and that they feel valued and their perspective is valued. Um, and that's my job is to listen for that as well and to reflect that and amplify that as much as I can. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. Because like, I really do think that like, if you don't have diversity and inclusion in government, you're not going to see diversity and inclusion of, in the things that are coming out of government as well, like policy, or, you know, certain laws. So I think that's really important as well. And even what you're talking about before, like, even if we, you know, even if we like don't even think about like, what comes out of the government, like you just being in that position, a government like, for young girls and women of color to, you know, see someone that looks like them already has like so many other impacts that like can't just be seen like in the moment, I don't think. Because I don't think, you know, I would be, I don't, you know, a, a host, a co-host of a podcast if it weren't for me seeing other women doing these sorts of things, right? Yeah, so same here. So I think that's a big thing as well. And actually that's, it's my favorite story from my campaign in 2019, the first campaign I was ever a candidate in, was the uh, night after the election when I was elected, I got a message from a parent in the riding who told me that I, I knocked on her door and, and they were of South Asian descent as well. And I knocked on their door during the campaign and she has a 19-year-old daughter who met me and we chatted for a little bit. And she said in her message that her daughter had never been interested in politics before. But after meeting me at the doors, she got interested and excited and that her daughter and her friends got together on election night to watch the results just to see if I would be elected. And she thanked me for engaging her daughter and having her daughter feel interested and engaged in politics because she saw somebody who looked like her and she saw herself reflected. And uh, that was incredibly meaningful to me because that's exactly one of the things I was hoping to do is to inspire other women. Maybe it's not in politics, but just to see themselves in roles where they are in the public eye and their voice is valued and being heard. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, what this discussion all about, you know, representation, I think this actually transitions really well into like our next topic, um, which is that like, you know, in this podcast, we wanted to talk a little bit more about important current events that are happening. And because you are a representative at the provincial level, we wanted to talk a little bit about something that came up in provincial politics, which is the new draft K to six curriculum, right? And, you know, we've just had this whole conversation about representation in government. And I think this idea of representation and diversity is something really important when we're talking about this K-6 curriculum. 
But I think for a lot of our listeners, maybe, you know, they've never heard of what this curriculum even is. Um, and they don't know what's in it, what's it about, like, wh what's going on with this whole situation, right? So, you know, for those listeners who don't know, do you think you could, you know, briefly summarize what this K-6 to draft curriculum is? Yeah, thank you. So, um, yeah, I have to say this is a topic that I'm getting a lot of emails and messages and correspondence on. So uh, roughly about, a, uh, I think about a month ago it was now, uh, the current government introduced a draft uh, curriculum for uh, kindergarten to grade six, and it's for all subject matters, right? For social studies, language arts, phys ed, like all of the subject matters. And this is the result. Now, this is, there's a long backstory to this, but let me just say that, you know, many portions of the of the curriculum right now. So which is what kids learn in school, right? Um, much of it is, is decades old. So it's it's actually goes back to some of them are 30 years old, some of the pieces of, of curriculum that are currently being taught. So there's absolutely a need to update and review our, our curriculum and to make sure that it reflects not only our values and our and um, and our the situation in our province now, but also where the world is going, right? The world has changed a lot. So a curriculum review began actually in 2014 under a previous progressive conservative party, and then it was continued on uh, under the former NDP government. And basically, it was a review of the entire curriculum, which involves getting you know experts and and teachers and parents were provided input, um, and elements of that curriculum became quite, um, I think or at least actually not the curriculum itself because it was never actually released under the NDP, but certainly the process got a little bit politicized. And so there was concerns by the, uh, at the time, opposition United Conservative Party that there was, I, I guess they claimed that things were happening in, in secret is the words they used. And, and it became kind of a political football about how what's going to be in this curriculum. So when the new government was elected in 2019, the United Conservative Party, they kind of scrapped what was done under the former NDP government and began a new process of rewriting it. And we saw the draft curriculum that they've developed, which was released about a month ago. And since that time, there has been a lot of concerns raised about that curriculum. And it's probably more concerns than I could probably get into in this conversation. But there's kind of some central themes to the concerns around it. One is that um, there are concerns that it's not developmentally appropriate. So some of the things that kids are expected, we're talking K to six, right? So five-year-olds up to 11-year-olds. The way that they're expected to learn things, what they're expected to learn does not seem to match with, with what their kind of age level can learn. There's also, excuse me, <clears throat> concerns about um, what the content of that curriculum is. So we talked about representation and how that's so important. And one of the key pieces that we wanted, I think Albertans wanted to see reflected in that curriculum is, you know, Indigenous worldviews, right? And reflecting um, tra th those traditional ways of knowing in a different way and talking about um, representation of persons of color and different ethnicities and um, LGBTQ2S people and making, and women and making sure that all of them, so all children could see themselves reflected in the new curriculum. And that seems to be glaringly absent um, from the current curriculum that, as it's proposed, meaning it doesn't have a lot of perspectives, uh, certainly not uh, the way that, that, for example, Indigenous uh, experts believe that it should have been reflected. It seems to be a really one-centered kind of focus. Um, there's lots of other questions just, you know, about who's excluded, who is part of that. Um, it doesn't, like teachers have spoken out and said it's not really being presented in a way that can be taught. It's really heavy on content. Like there's a lot of memorization 
education and stuff that little kids are expected to know um, rather than skills, right? And critical thinking skills. And certainly, as I'm sure you guys and all your listeners know, like the world and the economy is different, right? It's a very tech-based and it doesn't feel like that's reflected it's in the curriculum like an understanding of things like coding and what the new you know economy in the future will look like it seems very traditional and old fashioned and this kind of really heavy knowledge content based learning so since that time and just to you know there's been a lot of feedback on the draft curriculum and i think a lot of people are concerned uh, that it does not reflect what we think kids should should learn or need to learn to go forward. So Indigenous organizations have spoken out. I think we're now up to about, um, I think it's over 40 of the 60 school boards have indicated that they're not prepared to pilot, which means to test out the new curriculum in the upcoming school year. And that represents more than 70% of the students in Alberta. And overwhelmingly parents and I'll, like, I can't tell you the number of people who've just said, I can't imagine my children learning this. And I have mm-hmm. to admit, quite honest, I'm a parent of two young kids. My, my daughter's in kindergarten right now. My son is in grade two. And as a parent, even I had like a really strong reaction to it because I just could not picture my kids understanding or learning it. And some of it was just frankly, really disturbing content that I thought, I just don't think my kids... Um, need to learn about that. And then really important things that they should learn about, like residential schools early on, that was not reflected in this draft curriculum. They don't learn about it until much later, grade five or grade six. And, you know, we know that the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission talked about making sure kids understand that from an early age. So really overwhelming amount of concerns from Albertans about what kids are learning in that curriculum. That was a long answer. Sorry, it's a big issue. No, no, it is a big issue because like I read up on it a little bit and I've heard, you know, people talk about it on social media and I've heard parents talk about it and my friends talk about it. And there's like, there's like some contrast with like when I was in, for like reference, I'm in grade 12. So when I was in, you know, K to six, um, it, it just sounded like there was like a lot of differences, especially with like the teaching about like First Nation, Métis and Inuit issues, as well as teaching about, you know, all different ethnicities and races as well as different genders and sexualities I think that it's really important because when you're young that's when you kind of like develop the foundation of your character and your personality so if you don't have a good foundation for your morals or for your worldview then that's going to cause some troubles in your higher level education right so for not teaching kids about residential schools for example until they're in grade six or five then that's just not going to have as much of a great effect as teaching them early on because it is a really important part in our you know history right and I think that a lot of people like kind of just like brush over it sometimes but it's definitely one of those things that needs a lot more discussion than there already is so the fact that it's kind of just again being brushed over isn't really helping with the situation at hand because it won't help with that whole reconciliation process um and I heard this one thing that apparently they're not teaching them about dinosaurs like I don't I don't know if that's right or wrong but I just want to say I remember learning about dinosaurs and there's like literally dinosaur museums so I don't know why you wouldn't want to have that in a curricula. <laughs> I mean, we have two dinosaurs named after Alberta and Edmonton, right? Like, and yeah. uh, as a parent of 
an eight-year-old son, I can tell you taking out dinosaurs does not seem like a good idea. They love, And of course, that's part of it too, right? Is making sure that kids are enjoying learning, right? Like we want kids to see themselves because they're more likely to be engaged in learning, right? And, and uh, so, you know, taking out some of those pieces, which we have a very strong connection to in Alberta, to dinosaurs, we should be including that. But also that's something that kids will just really foster a love of learning. And, you know, I have to say on the issue of residential schools too, like my kids have great capacity for empathy, right? And kids have that capacity really early on. And there's ways to teach about these very difficult subjects, but important subjects in ways that are age appropriate. And we already, you know, we celebrate Orange Shirt Day at, at I'm sure you do guys, you do yep. at school too, right? And my kids do in their elementary school. And there's ways to talk about it already that kids, even that young can understand. And they understand things like fairness and the importance of family and the importance of being part of their community. Community, they get that. So it's very possible to teach about even difficult subjects um, in ways that will really connect with kids. And we want them to develop that empathy early on. And um, so I, you know, I being a parent of young kids, I, I can see what resonates with them and what is meaningful for them. And I want them to love school. I want them to feel like they see themselves there. And uh, and then, of course, you can even take an economic perspective and say, we want kids to have grow up and have the skills they need to be successful, right? And, and the economy that's shifting and changing. And um, so there's lots of reasons that we believe that it's important to take a big pause on this curriculum and really go back to... Um, those who understand how kids learn and what's important. There's lots of research and education on that and rethink it because we want it. It's, we're going to be stuck with it for a long time. That's the other thing. Curriculum doesn't change very easily or very often. So um, we want to make sure we get it right. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. And I think like for me, I, 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 like looked at a few articles about this curriculum as well when it first came out and then um, just a bit more recently. And I think in the social studies curriculum, like a big thing lacking again was like that lack of, um, you know, indigenous history and in including, um, you know, their stories, right? Um, and I know I'm pretty sure there were a few um, indigenous members or Métis people who sat on a council or a committee, I believe, that helped to draft this curriculum. Um, and um, I think this draft curriculum is, it, it is just a draft and I believe it won't be finalized until 2022, if I'm not mistaken, right? Um, but I know a there were many Indigenous members who did sit on a council and who were there to like um, have their input considered into this curriculum. And then when the draft curriculum did come out um, and we saw the content that was in there, I think it's, you know, it's a, like really shocking to see that there is such minimal inclusion of Indigenous history, right? I feel like you know, that that isn't from like a Eurocentric and like colonialist perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Because even when I was in elementary, we did learn about Indigenous history, right? But like sometimes I sit here and I wish like, I, I wish they did teach us more, right? Because I believe the way that they, it's taught to us taught to us is like so diluted and yeah. doesn't really like cover the whole scope and honestly I'm not going to sit here and say exactly what I want to see in this curriculum because <laughs> I want to see what indigenous people want to see in curriculum right yeah. and I, I can't speak on their behalf or anything right so I really do wish that you know this draft curriculum included more um, of their input and took their things into consideration, especially after they, you know, invested the time into sitting on this council, giving their input. I think to kind of disregard all that is 
a bit disrespectful. And that's one of the big things I don't like about this at the moment. Yeah, 100% Cheryl, because even some of those uh, Indigenous representatives who were part of that review and the writing of the of the curriculum or at least were given it to to provide their feedback. They've after they saw the draft curriculum, they said this doesn't reflect our input, and we we don't support it, right? And we've seen, uh, and that, and I think you said it exactly right. It's not up to us necessarily to decide. They they are the indigenous communities should be the ones to determine whether or not what's in there is, reflects what they believe you know children should learn. And uh, and if they're saying it's not appropriate. They're, they are the the experts on that, right? And so we should be deferring to their to their wisdom and their way of knowing to to rely on that. So yeah, absolutely. We need it. It, it does not seem like the curriculum as prepared uh, is meeting the needs of of many Albertans. And um, you know, I think. And then let's just put it in the context of COVID as well, right? And and the 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 enormous uh, strain um, on the school system in this past year. To and we don't know exactly what September will look like, and it does not seem like it's a good time to be uh, to be piloting this new curriculum. That's already there's a lot of concerns about it. So yeah, we need to go back to the drawing board on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, for sure. Yeah, like I think that like it, but it's nice that you know at least we can sit here and talk about this curriculum and bring up constructive criticism for it, um, because I think that's like a really important part about this draft curriculum is the fact that like I, d- I did actually read up that there's a lot of pe- there's like petitions going around and parents um, that are contacting people and you know signing these petitions and stuff like that. So it's nice that we can talk about all of that like constructive criticism um, because like I know like at least in the high school level I know that um, with our I. B curriculum we often times like our teachers will like openly kind of like discuss like you know a bit more constructive criticism on our curriculums as well um and actually our IB like they kind of encourage it with our theory of knowledge classes so like kind of criticize and question everything so that kind of just like reminded me when we're talking when we're having this discussion I kind of thought about that because um like kind of those discussions about diversity and indigenous history as well as I think another criticism that people brought up was it doesn't teach a lot about LGBTQIA plus communities um, which I think is very important because they are an integral part of our society and if we don't learn about them and their history then that's like a huge gap um, in development for young kids right Um, and then learning about different cultures and different ethnicities as well like I grew up in a very diverse community for my whole life I've kind of I've grown up in different parts of Canada and I do appreciate appreciate learning about different cultures and especially being able to learn about indigenous history as well. I remember we would, you know, we would learn my, at least my teachers did a pretty good job at at teaching me about it. Um, And so it's kind of sad to think about the fact that like, you know, that might not happen potentially with this draft curriculum because our world is progressing and we're having, you know, different issues are arising, but we also need to learn about what happened in the past. Right. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I think like with this curriculum, I think maybe when people are like listening to this are probably like, oh, like, why should I even care about K to six curriculum? You know, (laughs) I'm not going to like, I'm not in K to six, but I think like really this curriculum is probably going to, well, it is going to have like a lot more impacts than you might think, right? Because this is like 
the future, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the future children, like what they're going to learn. And it's going to dictate a lot and their involvement in politics, right? Because I think uh, as insignificant as K-6 to might seem in our heads, you know, I think it really does lay out that foundation, you know? I think if you have one of those really positive learning experiences in elementary, it can really you know, change your perspective on school and learning as well. I mean, when I was in, you know, in elementary school, I loved school, you know, it was just like, <laughs> I got to like hang out with my friends. It was chill and whatever. Yeah. And I don't know. I've, I think I've always been someone who's like, liked school quite a bit. Yeah. So. Me too. This is just the K to six portion of the curriculum, but there's new curriculum coming for uh, for junior high and high school as well, right? That's, that's in the works as well. So certainly even if what's I agree with you. What we're doing now lays a foundation for uh, for a long time for kids, but also, and you know, maybe by the time that that junior high and high school curriculum comes out, you know, of course, many of the listeners today won't be in high school anymore. Uh, but that it's coming, right? And just think about how much that shapes um, your ability to maybe go on to post secondary or what you might be interested in doing afterwards, and uh, and how important what you're learning is as you said, shapes your love of, of learning, shapes your love of school and what you go on to do and what you're prepared to do and what skills you have going forward. So it has long-term implications for all of us. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I I really like this discussion. Like as soon as I heard about this curriculum and then I was like thinking, like this was in my head, like before I even reached out to you to film this podcast, I was like, oh, I'd love to talk about this on the podcast. <laughs> and I was thinking, I was like, oh my gosh, like, MLA Rocky Fancholi and like here you are and I love this discussion a lot I really like I mean personally I really like talking about politics I think Mm -hmm, it's really interesting um and yeah I think it's even if you don't like politics I think it's still important to be a part of the conversation and get involved and I think this really transitions into you know the next segment here which is that in the end we want to bring this back to the ways that students and youth can get involved in politics right because I see so many people who are interested in politics but not know where to start and I also see many people who choose to be really distant from politics as well which you know I learned a while back that you know choosing to be distant from politics is a sign of privilege right not having to be involved because you know in the end it's not going to impact you as dramatically as it's going to impact other people right so yeah we just wanted to have a conversation about this as well yeah and I think that's very true about um you know there's politics can sometimes be seen as just like the formal kind of thing that takes place in the legislature and it's the political parties. Um, but I think more and more, um, two things are true. One, what you said, Cheryl, which is that, um, being able to distance yourself from politics is an element of privilege yeah, because it it means that the choices and decisions that are being made somehow don't affect you. And if they don't affect you, that means you're probably okay. Now, that being said, uh, I think what we're seeing, and I'm definitely feeling, um, is that more more and more people are realizing that there is no separation between politics and your day-to-day life. And the curriculum is a really good example because that's something that maybe wasn't seen and, and let's let's be clear, I'm not sure it should be seen as political, but it has been, it has become political. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't think it should be. But now we're seeing that the decisions that government makes 
Uh, I think it's really hitting home for people that no matter who you are, there's implications for you. And so curriculum is one, but then there's like decisions around, you know, support for post-secondary education, right? And if it, it, that's probably a top concern for a lot of uh, listeners, but also for their families about, you know, what options are going to be available. Um, can I afford it? Can I access it? Um, and what, how, and at this day and age, it's harder and harder to um, succeed and work and get a good job unless you have some kind of post-secondary, right? And so if that becomes harder to access, that's affecting your future directly. Um, and then certainly like the education system generally, funding for schools, COVID, the way things have been managed over the last year, um, those are all decisions that are being made by governments, right? Um, and, you know, like the, the list is endless. Like if you, you know, love camping in parks, well, there's been decisions that have been made that affect access to parks, right? And, um, you know, obviously a big one that I hear about from a lot of young people, which is not just young people, but is climate change, right? And that's a bigger, much broader issue that it's not just one set of decisions, but it's a multiple series of decisions that affect the future health and well-being of our, of our environment, of our air, our water, our land, but all of us directly, right? I think now more than ever, we're realizing that climate change is something that uh, will affect and, and is going to affect all of our lives directly. So, you know, you, I think people can be disinterested in the political structures, perhaps, or maybe in the on what's going on in the legislature and in parliament or in city hall. But knowing that there's that that process and what's happening there actually still directly impacts your life. So you might not want to be following what's happening in the legislature every day. Fair enough. Sometimes I don't want to, to be honest, and I'm there. But, you know, but the decisions and choices that are being made are affecting everybody in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, and even the failure to act, right, I'd say is definitely something that we should all be concerned about. And, and one of the things that I know is a, a growing concern for me and for many is the growing rise of, you know, racism. Like we're seeing some overt acts of racism. Mm -hmm. And in some respects, some could say that is political or it's not, but, you know, government plays a role in, in a leadership role and, and how they respond um, to racism and how they carry themselves has direct implications on people's lives. So, yeah, yeah I think, I think less and less there's less and less distinction between politics and, and everyday life for people. And I think more and more Albertans are realizing that. I see it because I'm definitely getting more and more engagement from people. And I'm seeing a lot of young people reaching out and saying, how do I get more involved? And, and how do I make my voice heard? And so I, I think it's growing an, a growing kind of issue that's happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because like, especially that point about, you know, you're privileged if you don't have to be concerned about, you know, politics. I think for me personally, like, I think I developed an interest in politics at like kind of a young age. Um, not like when I was like three or anything, but like, you know, when I like gained conscious, I was like, okay, like things actually affect me because like, for me, like as a girl, as a person of color, as someone who wears a hijab, um, things like do directly affect me. I'm like an open target. I can't even go to France now because they banned the hijab. So I'm very like aware of politics and stuff especially um I remember when they um they have like the hijab niqab ban thing in Montreal in Quebec I was born there um so it's kind of like wow like I can't really even like comfortably go back to the place that I was born in um because of these and it's kind of surpassed as like oh yeah it's secularism and like they want to remain secular and I actually did a, I did a project on this for my global politics class um kind of like assessing like to what extent was that secular because secularism means that you're impartial to all religions but if you 
are imposing um, this law that disproportionately affects people, then that's not secular at all. And so I think like these elements of politics are kind of what really sparked my interest, especially with like human rights and race and racism and, um, you know, feminism and all of those things that I think a lot of our listeners may be able to resonate with as well. I think that there's, you know, our school has um, something called the Student Solidarity Committee, which is a committee that kind of, um, you know, it was new. It's created this year. And my good friend Archita, she started it. And they do a lot of work with this sort of activism and talking about political issues. We had um, a lot of resources online created for Black History Month. And then we also did a lot of work with, um, you know, Indigenous issues and you know all of these different really important issues that we have and so young people do get involved in politics and there are different ways that you can do that um, and spark your interest and so for you when was there like an event or you know some or a person or something that really kind of sparked your interest in politics and like inspired you to pursue this career? Yeah, I, it's funny because I think it's probably I could look back and probably my friends who've been friends with me since like I was in elementary school will be like, oh, Racky, there was like a million things that I, that I was interested in and engaged in. I remember in junior high being really concerned at that time. And, you know, I'm significantly older than both of you. And I can tell you it was like the early 90s. And there was, you know, the invasion of uh, Kuwait by Iraq. And that was like there was concerns that there was going to be, you know, there was going to be a big war because of that. And I remember organizing a peace march with some of my friends when I was 13 at the school about that. Um, I mean, that was just a really sort of small example. And it's not like we expected to change the world with that. But I think I always had this sense of being part of a bigger world. And I think I often equate that to the fact that my parents were immigrants to this country. Yeah. And so I always had this sense of being part of a bigger globe, right? And they had experiences from where they'd immigrated from. And also definitely feeling like I was very fortunate to be in Canada. Right. I always felt like there was a sense of gratitude for being here. So I had my I had this identity of myself as being one and part of a bigger picture and feeling like I have this obligation to be engaged and, and give back. And I think when in high school social studies, at that time there was big debates going on about who Canada was. There's a lot of constitutional um, debates going on around confederation and, and the charter and amendments to the constitution uh, around the Charlottetown Accord. And I don't know, I think it was a really interesting discussion about identity. And it was about, you know, is Quebec, Quebec does it have a distinct identity? That was my first introduction to issues about Aboriginal peoples and their distinct identities, right? And, and how it's reflected. And I just remember just, I think really feeling interested in that um, and being engaged and loving to debate on these topics. Now, where I kind of got involved in like politics, politics was in um, my undergrad. I was, um, I, I took a job at, as a summer student at a constituency office for an MLA, which is ironic because now I'm an MLA. But at the time I was just like, you know, I, I really felt like I wanted to get a little bit more experience. I did think again then that I wanted to get necessarily involved in politics, but I wanted a more professional experience on my resume. So I applied to work in her office and she she was a um, she was the MLA for Edmonton City Center for a very long time. She was a very strong, passionate, uh, articulate woman. And she was an absolute role model for me in a way that, again, she told me at that time, back when I was in my early 20s, she's like, oh, one day you'll run for office. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not, that's not, that's not for me. But I think I watched her and learned a lot from her uh, about how to be really, um, 
yeah, just really articulate and passionate and how it was a little bit tougher for women. I saw that for her. She dealt with some, you know, bullying and behavior in the legislature even. And I learned from that experience and she got me to get involved in campaigns. And that's when I first kind of volunteered on a campaign was in my undergrad. And, um, and so, yeah, again, I didn't do it with the idea that I was going to run for politics, but I just, the issues that were being discussed were things I cared about. I just, and I always knew, by the way, that if I ever did get involved in politics, it would be on the provincial level because I looked to where my interests were. And I cared about things like education. I cared about healthcare. Um, Cause you know, each level of government has their own responsibilities for issues. And that's really where I think I realized provincial politics were the issues I cared about. Um, I was very content to be behind the scenes though and do volunteering and, and campaigning and that kind of thing. Uh, and so what kind of pushed me over the edge to actually run myself was that somebody asked me to. And um, I was actually approached uh, to run in the 2019 provincial election. And I would, and I say it all the time, I would not have done it had I not been asked. It was not something I was planning on or that I was even thinking about doing, especially because my kids were quite young at that time. But I was asked and it made me realize that somebody else was seeing something in me that they thought might be valuable in politics. And, um, and then it just took a lot of soul searching and talking to my, my husband and my family and, and, and asking people around me that, you know, what do you think? What do you think about me running for politics? And overwhelmingly the response was, yes, do it. Right. And so that's what kind of pushed me to pull my hat in the ring in 2019. Um, but I tell this story because I also think it's important, particularly for women to be asking other women to run for politics, uh, and not and asking women who might not have that traditional background of, you know, been heavily involved in political parties or things like that. And, um, and just really looking at women in your world and saying, you know what, you've got, uh, you know, a strong voice on something and you've got passion and commitment. And I think it would be great to hear your voice in a different level to see, to hear it in politics. And, um, I believe in, in encouraging and mentoring and supporting, uh, women and diverse candidates in particular to have their voice heard because they may not see politics as where they want to go, but we need their voices in politics. So sometimes we have to encourage and support. Um, so yeah, I don't know. There's not one, I guess, one instance that led me to politics. It was a gradual, love of, uh, of watching these big decisions and, and ideas being discussed and debated at different levels and wanting to be part of that. Yeah, totally. Like, I think I hear a lot of people like talk about how they never really expected to go into politics. They never really planned for it. And I think it just goes to show how like, you know, you don't always have to have everything planned out, you know, like sometimes, you know, things just happen and they just turn out okay. And I think in this case, it turned out great, right? So you definitely don't need to plan out your whole life or anything. Yeah, I think that's a really important message too for, for young people because I've been asked sometimes when I speak to high school classes and they're like, you know, what volunteer activity should I get into in high school if I want to go into politics? And it's not about getting a specific resume. It's not about getting specific experiences. What I always talk about is follow, find out what your passions are and what you're interested in and find out different ways to advocate on those issues. And it doesn't have to be political to start with. It could be, you know, just talking to like-minded or interested 
you know, your, your, your friends or your fellow students, um, and volunteer on things that you care about. And what happens from those experiences that you gain skills and those skills can translate into politics if that's where you want to go. But there's lots of ways to make change outside of politics. But like I, I volunteered for a long time with a dog rescue organization. I love dogs. I'm a big dog lover. And so I was the adoptions coordinator for a dog rescue, just putting dogs into adoptive homes. That wasn't about patting my resume because certainly that's not necessarily impressive on my resume, but I loved animals. But what it taught me was a lot about volunteer management and how to recruit and support and keep engaged volunteers, which guess what was really important when I got into politics, right? Because that is a big part of politics is getting people to give you their time and energy and volunteer for you. And you want them to feel like it's meaningful and important. So I learned those skills in a totally different setting, um, not related to politics, not related to advancing my career or padding my resume, just because I volunteered because I love it, right? And so I'm a big believer in just, you've got to find your passion and find the things you're interested in and you will find different ways to pursue it. And that's not necessarily about padding, uh, you know, a particular path to get to politics. It's the the instincts that get Mm -hmm. you there. Yeah, totally. And, you know, you got involved in politics and you got involved pretty early on. But I think, you know, some people might be hesitant to get involved in politics because they don't really know where to start. Right. So do you have any suggestions on how youth or anyone really can participate in politics or contribute to the community? So like I said, first of all, find what your interests are and see if there's issues. And like, I love the idea of building the student groups and doing that kind of thing. If you are interested in politics, I really think that one of the best ways um, to get involved in politics, whatever level, is, is actually to get involved on a campaign. Um, it's, it's, it's just one part of it. It's just one piece of it. But it's a good way to kind of feel out... Um, what that process looks like. And again, campaigns are only one part of the political process, but, you know, we coincidentally have a municipal election coming up this year in in Alberta, right? And there's going to be school board trustees, there's going to be, you know, city councillors and mayoral candidates. And I suggest, like, exploring that, like, do a little bit of research. You don't have to decide off the bat, you know, this is the candidate that you want to support 100% and you're throwing it, you know, feel it out, get involved in a campaign, see what's involved. Um, if you want to get involved in, in political parties, of course, for the provincial and federal levels, there's political parties that you can always reach out to and get involved in. Um, but I also think it's just really about finding those issues that you care about and finding ways to advocate on those issues that may not be within the structure of a formal political party or a campaign. Um, I think the energy and mobilization of young people is incredibly powerful, right? And that's, um, you've got to be writing to your elected officials. You've got to be bombarding them, frankly, with uh, with what your thoughts are and to keep, keep doing it. Whenever we see governments responding to, you know, uh, the public's views on things, it's because the public is persistent and consistent and, uh, and is making their voice heard over and over again. And so that's that's certainly one way. I, I would say all of you should, and I maybe for most of you, I am your elected official, and I hope I am. Um, you should be reaching out to me and talking to me about what your concerns are. Um, but really talk about mobilizing amongst yourselves, like um, finding ways to gather your own energy on certain issues um, and doing research and getting involved um, and, and you know, making change. And there's we talked about petitions. We talked about signs. We talked about, you know, all the things in the curriculum that are happening 
happening. People are writing, people are sending in videos, people are doing all that work. That's happening at the ground level. That's not happening because the politicians are calling for it, right? It's people saying, this is what we want to do. We want to make our voice heard and we're going to gather and organize amongst ourselves. And so there's lots of you know, specific opportunities to get involved in politics, but there's lots of way to organize just on issues you care about in many different ways. Yeah, so totally, I agree. And I hope, um, you know, our listeners kind of put that into action and are able to find new ways to get involved in the community. But other than that, that is an end to today's discussion. I had a great time. I loved what we talked about today. It was so great. And really, we thank you for your time because we know how busy you are. And it means a lot that you were able to set aside this time and be a guest on our podcast. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I love uh, getting a chance to connect with uh, students at Lillian Osborne more than I, I can't get there to the school as much anymore. So this is a great new way for me to be talking to the students there. And I just want to thank you for what you're doing and having these great discussions. And I look forward to hearing all the future podcast episodes. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is it for this. And this podcast should be out um, beginning of May. So look forward to that as well. Yes. And we'll be, we'll probably be promoting this on, you know, the Lillian Osborne Instagram page as well. So you can feel free to, you know, repost, do whatever you want with this podcast as well. I'm all over social media. I'll be reading it. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, Cheryl. And thanks, Ishra. Take care. And that's a wrap, you guys. I feel like I got a whole lot of thoughts out of my system today while talking to MLA Rocky Pancholi. I think, I mean, Cheryl, obviously, I'm pretty sure you can agree with me when I say this. Like, listening to her just makes me feel so inspired because she's talking about all of these amazing ways that we as students, that we as young people can get involved in politics, as well as how if you do have a potential interest in politics and the sort of like political scheme, how you can get started. Um, to pursue a career path as well and kind of like especially when she was talking about important issues like women's rights and um, you know race related issues I think that really hit home um, and I also enjoyed our discussion about the the K-6 curriculum because there was a lot to talk about especially the fact that they're not teaching them about dinosaurs that, that was a little weird <laughs> um, but I really liked how she brought up really important points especially about the residential schools and how we need to teach people about that at a young age and not just wait until they're you know in grade six so I think that there's a lot that we could that our listeners actually can take away from um our interview with MLA Pancholi yeah for sure I absolutely love talking with her I thought it was so fun I love talking about you know politics and this sort of stuff and you know the conversation about the curriculum is what I really liked I love how you know we got to talk about what we thought as well and have like more of a mm -hmm. conversation with MLA Pancholi I thought it was really great I thought the topics that we talked about were really good and I really hope that you know through this podcast we can try to inform our listeners as well about current events and try to encourage people to get involved more um, in politics and in the community in general. And of course, we left off with some suggestions on how people can actually get involved in politics. And I think that was a really great note to end off on. I really love talking to her. I learned so much and mm -hmm. I hope you Me did too. too. 
We definitely couldn't have done this without the support of Mr. Ogrodiak, Mr. Backy, and our content producers, Angela Torres and Aaron Padbury, our technical producers, Kevin Xiao, Renee Cordero, Shamir Mughal, and Elliot Slavens, our photographer, Alyssa Fraser, and last but not least, the Lillian Osborne Parent Association, Mr. Radmanovich, and the admin team. And special thanks to Andrew Bencole, who made the music that you guys heard in today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed. Yeah, for sure. I know I enjoyed making this. So I hope you guys enjoy listening to it just as much. And stay tuned for our next episode. And until then, just remember to be legendary. legendary.